0: No one should underestimate the Chinese people's staunch determination, firm will, and strong ability to defend national sovereignty and territorial integrity. The historical task of the complete reunification of the motherland must be fulfilled, and will definitely be fulfilled, said Xi Jinping, the president of China in 2021, before Russia decided to invade Ukraine. And welcome to episode three of What China Wants. And today we're going to be talking about whether the Russian invasion has made it more, less, or about the same likelihood that China will invade Taiwan to seek what it claims is its national policy of reunification. And to do so, I'm here with Stuart Patterson, uh, as
1: always. Um, Hello, Stuart. Hi, Sam, um, and welcome to our listeners Why don't we kick off, Sam, by just going straight to the core of of the matter? What do you think? Do you think that the Russian invasion of Ukraine makes an invasion of Taiwan more likely or more imminent or neither?
0: Uh It's a good question, because many people in the West seem to think that uh, watching Russia's travails in Ukraine has made it less likely that China would do uh, such a thing with with Taiwan. After all, it's 100 miles across the sea, it would be one of the biggest amphibious uh, invasions ever. And it's blooming difficult to get that many men across that larger stretch of water. And if you see the Taiwanese defend in the same way the Ukrainians have, then of course, from a purely military point of view, then it it would make things less likely. And certainly, that's the message a lot of people in the West have been saying uh, in the last few months. But that is a problem because I think people look at it through Western eyes. When we look at what China is saying about its stance on Taiwan, which we look at every week, we have seen no change whatsoever. In the desire to reunify in whatever way is deemed necessary uh, with Taiwan in order to achieve the the Great Chinese Dream, and so I I don't think it's made much difference at all in the overall strategic vision of things. What has changed, I think, is the way that China will do so, because rather than learning the lesson that it's a good or a bad thing to uh, invade or to forcefully reunify if needed with with Taiwan. What they're doing is they're looking at the American and the Western response and the military response by Ukraine and trying to work out how to best do it rather than whether to do it
1: at all. Uh, What do you think? So so I suppose the obvious point I just make there, Sam, is you you mentioned the Ukrainian valiant defence. Is there any evidence to suggest that Taiwan would A, have the same spirit in in defence and B, have the military capability and hardware to pull it off?
0: In terms of hardware, if you're looking from the outside, you you think that the nineteen fifties tanks, the nineteen sixties and seventies planes that make up the backbone of the of the Taiwanese armed forces Aren't necessarily up to the job, but recently America has been selling more and more special munitions, the type of which have been very effective in Ukraine against the Russians. So there is that. Plus the fact that Taiwan has got in a really good uh, high tech sector, which can develop and has developed missiles and uh, and and other things like drones, etc., which could be used for great effect against any Chinese invaders. But in reality, you've got the PLA. You know, the People's Liberation Army is a huge. Uh, military machine that in theory could go over and, and, and wipe out uh, the defenders quite easily, whether they could in reality, as much as we spoke about last week, they haven't had a war since 1979, so they're completely untested. Um, but I think that in terms of morale for the Taiwanese – what is important to note is that majority, the vast majority of Taiwanese do not want to be reunified. The last last poll in December time, approximately, was that only 11, 12 percent, something like that, wanted to be reunified at all. And only 1 percent now. And over 70 percent of Taiwanese said that they are prepared to fight to, to to keep the status quo. So it's a good question, Stuart. But I think generally the, uh, the
1: Taiwanese would put up a fight, even though they're outgunned uh, by the PLA and and sam in terms of the western response to the russian invasion of ukraine um how do you think beijing is interpreting that because the narrative that we read in the western media is largely about how unified we've been and how the russian invasion has solidified opinion and yet you could draw different conclusions couldn't you if you wanted to because you could say well actually the two things that the West, using a, a loose terminology, could, could actually have done, which would have made a very big difference, were firstly, to actually intervene themselves militarily, and secondly, to cut off Russian gas. And actually, we've done neither. We've, we've done everything short of the two things that would perhaps really have, have swung it in Ukraine's favour.
0: Yeah, um, so you're completely right. The, the West seems to have convinced itself that it's done everything it can against Russia, whereas actually we all know there's an awful lot more they could do, for example, cutting off all uh, oil, oil and gas straight away. And the other thing is is that America has made it quite clear that it's not going to intervene against a nuclear-armed state in direct military confrontation. And, and I think that's an incredibly important lesson that China's learning, which, which is that they can really do what they want because America, if Russia and Ukraine is anything to go by, is going to be limited on its sanctions and is not going to intervene militarily directly. It will provide arms and munitions, etc. but getting those to Ukraine is much easier than getting them to Taiwan. After all, Ukraine is, has different NATO countries on its border. We just need to ship the stuff across by road or train or whatever. But Taiwan is isolated by lots of sea And trying to resupply them, whether it's military uh, resupply or food or medicine or whatever, incredibly difficult. So I think that um, if you're looking at the lesson that China is learning about the West, everything you said is true. There is not as much pushback as there could have been. The West is united, of course, in that they have done something, but it's not not to the end of the earth. And also that they're not going to intervene directly. But the other thing which is really important to note is that the rest of the world's viewpoint about this is quite uh, different to that of the Western alliance, uh, in the sense of many countries, you know, India being a prime example, have refused to toe the Western line and actually have said, you know, what, it's none of our business, really, or uh, worse, have said that they'll support Russia because they need Russian oil and gas, or because they don't want to be seen as helping the West, who they don't particularly like. And China is, you know, intent on building its defences with those countries. I'm certainly talking about that from a political point of view. But what about you, Stuart? Would you think that from an economic point of view, China is A, learning lessons from the Ukraine war, and B, using that to better prepare its defences against any action that the West might take economically against them?
1: Yeah, I would, I, I would say both. So the first point I would make, obviously, is that sanctioning China in the same way that the West has sanctioned Russia um, would carry a much, much higher cost economically uh, for the West than, than the Russian sanctions would. So to put it in perspective, um, you know, China's economy is literally 10 times larger than Russia's. About 15% of global exports come from China. And a not dissimilar percentage of global exports go to China. So, not short of 30% of global trade is either into or out of China. And obviously, that's a a very different scenario from the situation in Russia. Uh, The other point I suppose I'd make is that, you know, foreign multinationals have much more at stake in China than they do in Russia. So, you know, the stock of FDI in China runs into trillions. And we have this situation where about forty percent of of China's exports actually are made by foreign invested companies in China. So the whole degree to which the Chinese economy is enmeshed in global economy um, is, is very very different. So one conclusion that the Chinese might draw is that if Western Europe, in particular, was loathed to embargo Russian hydrocarbons straight away for fear that it might have inflicted 2 or 3% hit to Western European economies, they might take some solace from the fact that a similar approach to, to China would have an impact that I, I would imagine would easily double that. And of course, China has a, a monopolistic grip on mm-hmm. quite a lot of important production. Okay, so china's manufacturing value added its global share is now just over thirty percent three zero percent, and in particular, China absolutely dominates the personal computer market, it dominates the sort of photovoltaic production line, so anything to do really with solar power, it has a pretty entrenched monopoly on rare earths refined rare earth minerals, and clearly these are critical industries, partly for our uh, hopes to transition away from fossil fuels to to, to to more sustainable energy sources, but also just for the continuance of everyday life.
0: So on that, people might say they're, they're not that critical. I mean, we can do without PV in the sense of you could rely on wind farms or, or, or turn the gas or the coal back on, personal computers. How many do we need? You know, that would be the, the argument against that. But what about critical supplies, though? I mean, is there anything that, that, that China's central to which would lead to Western economies grinding to a halt in the same way that Germany feels that if it cut off the gas and the oil, its economy will grind to a halt uh, with Russia?
1: Well, I slightly disagree with you on the computer side. I think computers are pretty critical. I mean, we wouldn't be doing this podcast without them. And they do need replacing, right? So if you think about the embedded stock of PCs around the world outside China, and you assume that 20% of them need replacing each year for a five-year sort of useful life, productivity would very quickly drop off if they weren't being replaced. Likewise, telecommunication technology. So, phones, for example, although a lot of these are now made in Vietnam, a lot of the component parts come out of China. And therefore, some of the supply chain diversification that's taken place, or the end product diversification, I should say, does not actually exclude China from the supply chain. And clearly, you know, uh, mobile phones without the components aren't going to work. No. So so actually the the degree to which China is critical to modern manufacturing should not be underestimated. And so there would be a very heavy cost particularly if a conflict in Taiwan or the sanctions were to remain in place. And I think part of the gamble that the Chinese would be taking would be that their own society whether through patriotism or through coercion was much more resilient to the disruptions to everyday life that would occur than Western society would be. I mean, do you remember when COVID struck and, and um, you know, there was a chance that Father Christmas wouldn't be able to pay his annual visit mm. <laughs> because we were going to be running out of toys? I mean, that merited front page news. There is very little tolerance and resilience, I would argue, in Western societies for even moderate levels of disruption. Whereas clearly in an authoritarian state, I would say that resilience runs deeper. Well, on the surface, yeah, until you break it. And then uh, at that point, it gets gets a bit tasty. Well, that's right. And and of course, uh, you know, a, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would be a make or break event for the regime, because if it failed, one would imagine that the regime would fall. And particularly if it failed with severe loss of life and the economic disruption, we must remember that China's economy is very fragile at the moment. And China is very dependent on the rest of the world for demand. You know, exports make up 20% of GDP. It's much lower than it used to be. But equally, it's quite possible that the GDP is overstated as well. And, and, And China certainly, although it would be very inconvenient and damaging to the rest of the world to be cut off from China, China without export markets and China without an ability to import freely from the rest of the world. I mean, obviously, there would be regimes around the world that would align with China. But, you know, if the US Navy in particular were to be put to work to actually blockade China, economic life would become pretty intolerable there very fast as well. So, okay, you make good points there. So one of the things that we've noticed in the wake
0: of the invasion was that basically Russia's become almost like a semi-client state to China in many ways in terms of its economic dependencies and the fact that China is kind of looking after it and putting it under its wing and a real reversal to how it used to be 50, 60 years ago before the Sino-Soviet split in the early 60s. But here's a point, from a political point of view, you can see why the lesson that China is learning about this debacle is that it has managed to take advantage to coerce, in, a, in essence, Russia But is there anyone that could do the same to China? Is anyone that's got theoretical dependency that could be switched on if China found itself isolated from the West? Or is China just too big to basically be put in the corner by anyone?
1: Well, I I think it's a question of willingness, isn't it? Because China is very dependent on hydrocarbon imports and Russia does not really have the ability to meet that demand in its entirety or anything close to its entirety. Uh, So, for example, in 2020, which is before the invasion Of China's sort of $400 billion of mineral fuel imports, only about $53 came from Russia. You know, the Saudis were big exporters to China as well. Angola is a relatively big exporter too. And the amount of the hydrocarbons that are arriving over land, and therefore not necessarily subject to US naval power, you know, is relatively small. So if a Western-led pushback against a Chinese forced reunification of Taiwan or an invasion of Taiwan was to result in a broad coalition stretching into the sort of non-aligned movement, then China might have bitten off more than it could chew. But given the mooted reaction in some quarters to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we can't take it for granted that everyone's going to fall into line behind a sort of Western uh, a Western pushback.
0: And what's interesting is that, uh, from a political and even military point of view, is that China's spent a lot of time in recent years trying to build out a global alliance. It's coming from behind, obviously, with Western soft power and, and alliances everywhere. But it's launched the Belt and Road, which has gone down very well with certain countries. It's launched uh, recently the uh, the Global Development network and it's now launched the global security initiative and these are all designed basically to reach out to countries and say look we'll be your friend uh but you just look after us in, at the same time by you know allowing us to export our goods there or allow our companies to work there etc surely this is a political part of the economic defenses that they're building out but what else are they doing economically i mean i know that you and i have spoken about the internationalization of the rmb etc but how, how's that going? Uh, how's de-dollarization going? Uh, how long is it till China is basically able to economically ride the storm of its own making?
1: So, I think I think those are very good points, Sam. I mean, clearly, China's been developing its own international financial settlements and payments infrastructure for a while now, and the central bank digital currency is another prong in that, if you like, in its defences there but but one of the interesting things i think is that the central bank digital currency what one of the ways in which this was going to be internationalized was through tourism and and chinese overseas visitors and you know in a way it was chinese overseas tourists that led initially to to sort of quasi private sector payment systems out of china like alipay wechat pay etc going abroad and gaining significant market share particularly in southeast asia but but in other destinations too but but obviously with zero covid tolerance the the number of chinese leaving the mainland and going overseas has, has plummeted i mean we're down you know 85% or so in terms of visitor numbers so that is going to slow down the rollout overseas of the central mm. bank digital currency in a retail sense at least and so there isn't a lot of evidence that that actually the de-dollarization is going at a pace that necessarily suits the timetable that I think Xi Jinping thinks he's operating under with regard to Taiwan. So so I think there's mixed bags there. But we do have an audit going on in China of its economic dependencies. And, And what's quite clear from a lot of the work that we've been doing is that the trade patterns of China have been evolving in a way that makes their trading relationship very asymmetric. So they are tending to trade much more with smaller countries and in doing so creating a dependency and cultivating influence over the politics uh, and the economics in those countries. And to some extent, I think that probably manifests itself in political alliances. I mean, I don't know, would you agree, Sam, that we're seeing voting behaviour in the United Nations and other measures of Political compliance with China on the rise.
0: Yeah, definitely, we are seeing a lot more political alliance making with China abroad. I mean, the Solomon Islands thing a few weeks ago is an obvious case, but it's it's not just there. It's in it's in lots of the developing world, and it is a part of Maoist theory, which uh, was descended from what they were doing with the revolution and, and the civil war in the, in the 40s, which is against Stalin's advice, which is where you start the revolution in the cities and go out to the countryside, which is based on the Russian-Soviet system uh, and revolution. The Chinese under Mao went for the countryside and then captured the cities. And this is something that I've spoken to people in Chinese foreign policy about before, which is that you go after the developing world and you secure China's relationships there and you basically cut off the developed world uh, from that. And we've seen that with, you know, for example, Barbados shifting away from the UK and becoming a republic. It's a small country, but if you do that with lots and lots of small countries, you suddenly find that China's got a lot more reach than than it might have been thought otherwise. And from a political point of view, the Global Security Initiative, the BRI and everything, these are all part of the same message which is going out, which is that you know, we're reaching out to you and and we'll give you investment, but in return, you kind of recognise us. Uh, and you can see it very nicely tying in uh, to their preparations for whatever happens after the uh, forced reunification, if
1: indeed it does happen, which we think obviously is very likely. So in terms of a timetable then, Sam, no one likes to predict something that can be proved wrong imminently. But... It strikes me that China has a window of opportunity with Taiwan. I would argue that 10 years ago, the attitude of the CPC was very much that time was on their side, that given time and given China's growth trajectory, the Taiwanese would eventually just fall into line because it would be in their interest to do so, because China would become such a powerful economy and such a powerful global player. And Obviously, if the political reforms had continued, then unification with China might have become quite an attractive option. But perhaps now, given that China's economic growth model seems to be severely challenged, given that the demographics seem to be severely challenged, and given that a lot of the Western world, at least, seems to have embarked on a policy of deliberately trying to immunize itself from dependency on on china but is at the very beginning of that process and therefore has not been successful yet in doing so does this not all point towards a more imminent attempt to take taiwan
0: yeah uh well we know that just before the invasion one of xi jinping's foreign policy advisors a guy working in think tank in beijing was on record as saying that the planning for forced reunification with with Taiwan would happen after this autumn's party congress where Xi Jinping is expected to be made president for life but before 2027. So we're looking at sort of five years there, but assuming maybe the Russian debacle would put military planning back by a year or two, you know, by 2027, 2029, something like that. And I think this is very important, the time frame, I mean, in terms of the lesson learned by China from the Russian-Ukrainian war, is that there is a limited time because the West is powerful, is very powerful, and it's been able to rearm Ukraine, it's been able to, Give them sucker, uh, and and it might be more difficult to do so for Taiwan, but Taiwan is also learning lessons from this, and and the Zelenskyization, you could call it of uh, Taiwanese politics ahead of the twenty twenty four presidential election, where you're very likely to see much more sort of talk about standing up to your, your neighbour, and perhaps people even pushing further down the independence route. But moving forward into what China is is learning around this is that there is a simple equation, which is that China needs to get its economic and political ducks in a row to properly defend itself against Taiwan rearming with American and Western support to make any forced reunification a very, very difficult prospect indeed. And and so are we looking at that as being a five-year balancing act or a 10-year balancing act, probably sooner rather than later, to considering the amount of support that Ukraine has received? And I think that that, at the end of the day, is, is the equation that's going through Beijing's minds. And I think that that is the key lesson that's been learned, which is, as you said, there is not an infinite amount of time to make Taiwan's reunification happen. And the second point is that Taiwan can be and most likely will be supported. So therefore, there needs to be some preemption in making sure that that support is pushed down or pushed away uh, and that China's chances of taking Taiwan are enhanced rather than depressed by what's happening with Russia and Ukraine.
1: Sam, I suppose one of the key areas in this contest is actually Southeast Asia, because if Southeast Asia spoke with one voice firmly on one side or the other, then that could act as a big deterrent to China trying to exercise an aggressive takeover of Taiwan, I would think. And maybe what we should do in next week's podcast is look at the relative influence that China has brought to bear in Southeast Asia relative to Western powers and indeed other Asian powers.
0: Yep, yeah, good idea. We'll, we'll return next week with a discussion about Southeast Asia. Thanks very much, Stuart.
1: Uh, thank you, Sam.
0: Goodbye.